Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Episode 14, Becoming Our Retail Radical. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In this episode, we're talking about the last and final essential, number eight, Radical, with the help of our very special guests, Piers Fox and Scott Latchett from PSFK, live from New York City. We'll be hearing from them a little later in the episode. And Steve, this is uh, the, the culmination of a series of, of eight of our first season of 15 podcasts talking about the essentials. And the last two, um, Memorable and Radical, you described early on as ones that you can actually differentiate with in other words the other uh, the other six were more kind of you need to do their kind of table stakes tell me why you think uh, radical and and to some degree of course as well uh, memorable you can actually win and, and actually differentiate on sure well what a long strange trip it's been to get through the eight essentials here we are so uh, hopefully in the last episode on memorable i was able to uh, really articulate why it's so important. And, and essentially, it's it's no different than a long-lived concept of having a unique value proposition. Uh, it's just really taking that to 11, you know, having mm. having something that really sets you apart and people will talk about it or, or spread the word. So that's, that's the way you kind of become that signal amid all the noise in the world. So to me, memorable is kind of the what you need to mm. do. Of from a differentiation standpoint of the eight essentials, whereas radical is a little bit more the how. Because if you're going to consistently differentiate when you're faced with incredible amounts of competition, when consumer needs and expectations are changing all the time, et cetera, et cetera, you've got to build a machine or a habit for innovation. And in a lot of cases, to really be successful in today's world or the world as it's evolving, you've got to push to the edges sometimes. And that means trying some stuff that's probably not going to work. Some things that probably seem kind of silly are out there, but usually it's playing around the edges that really teaches you the most or gives you that competitive advantage. I didn't, I never asked you this actually in, in the discussions we've had about the essentials. Was, was there a mind behind the order? So radical is last, you know, just following memorable. Was, was that there for a reason? Did you, did you conclude on radical for a purpose? Yeah, I did. I mean, there's not so much a particular sequence to all of the eight. Uh, and I generally suggest that people can look at all eight and try to do a little bit of a diagnostic on their business. But to the extent they were organized, the, as you mentioned, the first six were really the ones that I thought were increasingly table stakes, you know, kind of must haves. And then the last two being the differentiators. So I knew I was going to end with memorable and radical. I guess the reason why I ended with radical is number one, I think it's probably the hardest thing for retailers to consistently do. But I also think it's almost like this muscle you need to build to sustain innovation over time. So to me, it was a little bit more not only to go into what it means, but also to say, you know, this is something you're going to be doing or need to do and right. keep doing forever until the end of time, basically. So uh, so I thought it made more, most sense to conclude with that before I wrap up the book. Uh, you know, we've we've talked at length really about this resistance to innovation. And and sometimes it feels like there's not overt resistance, but it's kind of inculcated in, into the brand or the organization. How do you go from an organization that is tenuous and, and kind of tweaks to one that looks at things from a 
a radical perspective? How do you, how do you, what are the kind of three or four kind of tips to say, you know, we need to do, you, you mentioned a couple in the book, fail better and, and, you know, understand that quitting and, you know, is underrated. In other words, sometimes things fail, but move on. So give me some of that insight. I think the starting point is to realize how powerful a force resistance can be both Mm. for ourselves as individuals as well as for the organization writ large. And what I talk about in the book, and we talked about, I think, on an earlier episode, is, and, and I just love Stephen Pressfield, who coined this term, the resistance, almost as a this mythical force mm-hmm. that keeps us stuck or keeps us from, from trying new things. And I, hel- I think it's helpful to picture how powerful a force can resistance to be, can be, whether it's making mm-hmm. changes to our diet or it's making changes to our business model, like everywhere in between, I think there is this fear of failure or looking stupid or getting fired or having mm-hmm. someone break up with, you know, any number of fears that can keep us from moving ahead as, as we should. So I think naming your fear, naming that resistance is incredibly important for us to do as leaders as well as members of teams and and cultures. Uh, But, you know, when you're in a complex organization, like many of us are, you really need to build that culture of experimentation. And so often that just starts at the top, right? You know, if the leader of the organization or the leaders of the organization are not fundamentally embracing uh, a culture of experimentation, um, if they're unwilling to celebrate failure and so forth, it's really hard to move the dial uh, as a, as an individual within at least a large corporation. So I think first and foremost is is seeing where those pockets of resistance are for ourselves and for the culture, and then it's working however we can within our power to try to, to try to knock them down. Well, you mentioned a couple of very powerful things: culture, of course, being one of them, and and the old culture eat strategy for breakfast that you can't really move forward. And I guess that's particularly acute when it comes to innovation because that's a, a particular organization right and and you highlight uh, amazon we haven't talked actually that much about amazon in this first season but they're clearly an organization that is risked big and one big at the same time that seems Absolutely. to be that seems to be you think that's their formula for success uh, you know it, it um, from the outside in it, it does seem that they take bigger risks make bigger bets uh, but there's something more. I think there's something more behind that. You've got great leadership, but is it is it that culture of both accountability and risk-taking together, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they've built it, I, I guess, as far as I can tell anyway, that this culture of innovation was very much part of what Bezos was trying to do from the beginning mm-hmm. and has put a huge emphasis on it. And I think you can certainly see that in terms of uh, who gets promoted at the company, yeah. how they talk about failure very openly. If you go back, which I would encourage people to do for a bunch of reasons and read Bezos's letters um, in the annual report, uh, it's really interesting because he always includes, as far as I can tell, he always includes something about a culture of experimentation and innovation. So I think they, uh, you know, they walk the talk, as mm-hmm. they say. And it is, I mean, one of the things that I think I'll, I'll admit is a weakness of my book is I don't really spend a lot of time on how to build this culture of experimentation. Mm. Some of that is because it probably would have made the book 500 pages long. Yeah. Um, some of that is because I'm not sure I've got any great mm. prescription for that because many people have been trying to tame this beast or tackle this beast for, for a long yeah. period of time. But certainly if you've, if you're starting a culture from scratch 
and you can build it in from the beginning, you certainly have to work really hard to maintain it, particularly as you get as big as a place like Amazon is. Mm. Um, but, but it's, it's hugely important. I think it's much harder. I mean, I've worked at a couple of companies that try and, and consulted to a few that have tried to really inject this culture of experimentation into a very status quo protecting kind of uh, culture. And it's not, even with the best leaders, it's, it's not easy to change at all. So I don't want to say, well, it's just a matter of reading a book or watching a yeah, TED talk or yeah. something. And suddenly you go from defending the status quo to this amazing culture of experimentation. It, it does feel, and you talk about this, that innovation, uh, developing it as a habit or muscle memory, as we referred to it. You know, one of the organizations of the retailers that I, I think has done the most amazing job, I think, is is Walmart under Doug McMillan. Because, you know, maybe 15 years ago, they weren't, as an organization, I didn't think of them as innovative. I thought of them as relentlessly good operators. Right. Um, but he really, you know, whether it was bringing in, you know, the dot-com business and my goodness, that has been up and down success. I mean, they've, they've bought big things and cleared them out. And, and, Mm -hmm. but he seems to have as a leader of a huge ship inculcated, uh, um, this habit of experimentation and and innovation. Would you, would you agree? I definitely agree. I, I think particularly having worked at a really large retailer that competed with Walmart, uh, it's no easy task. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great example of, number one, that, that that message and action has to come from the top. I think it's also a realization that if you're going to really build this culture, and I think it's probably largely true, whether it's a huge company or, or even a mid-sized company, you're going to have to work at it for a while. You're going to have to try a bunch of stuff. You're going to have to be willing to perhaps get rid of some people and bring some new people in. You're going to have to spend quite a lot of money, not only on things as Walmart did uh, with some of their acquisitions, but also Mm -hmm. in investing in technology. And you have to say, you know, there are going to be things that aren't going to work and we have to fail fast. And And I think if you look at, you know, you pointed to some of the online work that, that Walmart's been at for several years and, they bought a couple things that were clearly not good investments, just as Amazon has invested big bucks in a bunch of things that didn't mm-hmm. work. But mm-hmm. they learned from them. They closed things down. They pivoted. They yeah. applied those learnings in new ways. And I think that's all part of seeing innovation as a core capability, not a pro, an ideas program or mm-hmm. something we're going to put on the break room poster it, it's it's really seeing you know this is a serious discipline just like merchandising is a serious mm. discipline or supply chain or loss prevention yeah. or what have you so i think too many retailers don't really understand the practice of innovation and building that habit that muscle memory and all the things around it that that allow the culture to change if you need to change it over time and we're not talking here simply, I mean, hewing back to the title of this episode and of this essential, we're talking radical here. We're not talking the Kaizen approach where you're tweaking a millimeter at a time, right? I mean, that's the, the brave part. Do you need, let me ask you this question, because uh, you've both, as you said, you've both been in organizations and consulted them. Do you need a head of innovation? Do, does the leader need to have a lieutenant who focuses just on that? Or does that then become everybody else goes, well, he or she's in charge of innovation. I don't have to be like, how do you, where do you fall on that line? Well, I'll give you the very compelling answer of it depends. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there certainly have been a lot of different approaches to how to 
spawn innovation at, at companies, mm-hmm. innovation labs, heads of innovation, R and D budgets, you know, et cetera. And I, I don't know that I've seen one approach that necessarily works for, for every company. So I think you have to um, consider where you are in terms of maturity, how urgent and important is it for you to really move the dial? Mm. What, what sort of culture you have and how that will be received. Uh, so what I think is most important going back to what I was just saying a minute ago is you really see innovation as a core capability of the company and that you devote the resources to it to get the results you're going to need. The danger of putting something into an innovation lab or creating a department of innovation is they probably don't get results. I mean, I guess unless you think you're going to get all your results from the outside and it's really a go find innovation and bring it to us kind of role, which can be part Which of is it. another strategy, right? Some big yeah, companies, well, they, just, they just buy innovation, basically. Well, right? it's part of it. But I think, you know, if, if we've learned anything from the last 10 years, it's that most of retail has become more hybrid in nature, not only the physical, digital hybridization that we've talked about, but the hybridization of formats and, and how technology mm-hmm. touches consumers in all sorts of different ways. So unless you're kind of a, a holding company that's owning a bunch of unrelated businesses or technologies, I think most retailers are going to need to integrate this innovation into their core business in some way. So I don't think you can keep it as kind of an outpost or a scouting operation all that long, or you have to realize, okay, it's your job to bring these ideas in, but now we have to have something that somebody in a group of somebody's that are responsible for scaling it and integrating it and and those things to turn it into a commercial viability. Well, that's that fun of uh, work in the matrix, right? Is it is it innovative and new, and and is it relevant? Those, you know, it's got to be got to be on the top part of that quadrant to make sense. Um, last thing I want to talk to you about before we get to the, our our great interview is is we talk about failing, being better at failure. <laughs> um, you got a, a, a you call fail better, and you've got a quote from Samuel Beckett, and you got Seth Godin is talking about it. It it really seems central to really, really central to radical innovation is failure. Be, be better at failing. I have not done massive studies on this, but I'm pretty certain if you look at the retailers that, as I like to say, basically watched the last 20 years happen to them, mm. they did very little experimentation or, or they put all their eggs in one basket to, mm. to use the cliche. Conversely, if you look at the retailers that have been consistently leading uh, or in some cases, like Walmart, Target, some others, Best Buy, have been kind of the old dog learning new tricks. Mm-hmm. You've seen that they have really embraced this notion of of failing, but failing fast, failing better. So I think the lesson for most of innovation, and not just in the retailing industry, is is very hard to sit down and pick the one or two embryonic ideas that are going to turn into massive commercial successes. Right. It's like a portfolio private, strategy yeah. in a private equity company, right? You, right. It's really You'll not, never get it right. You'll never get it right. Right. It's you not can. fundamentally different. And I think, yeah. you know, there are many, many lessons of, of things that started out with one idea in mind that ended up pivoting to totally different applications. Yep. So I think yep. that's just the way innovation works. You have to take that portfolio approach. The key, I think, is to take a lot of at-bats, uh, know you're going to, not to play out the cliche too much, but know you're going to hit a bunch of singles and you only need an occasional home run. But when something's not working, like I, I tell, just quickly, I tell a story in the book of something I worked on where we had this pilot that had been going on for like three and a half years. 
<laughs> and from my view, it looked like it really wasn't a success, but it certainly wasn't a failure, you know, like horrible failure. Yeah. But there were no plans to roll it out either. Mm-hmm. And it just was like in perpetual motion, you know, like a perpetual motion machine. You know, nobody was really compelled to shoot it for a bunch of reasons that aren't super interesting. But the real important thing was once we got rid of it, it freed up management attention and mm-hmm. resources mm-hmm. to go do something that actually had the promise of being meaningful to the company, which this particular idea never did. Now, we should have probably had 20 of those pilots going on at right. that time. That's right. a different right. story. Right. But you have to really think about the opportunity cost, I think, of your of your time and money, uh, not just whether or not it's sucking up a bunch of cash or, or what have you. So it's this portfolio approach, failing fast, applying those learnings quickly, and admitting sometimes that you just, hey, you know, we made a mistake and we need to move on. Well, I love that that last idea, this crowding out concept, right? Because attention at the senior executive level is not infinite. They don't have infinite amount of time. They've got a business to run and, and uh, they can't keep their their attention on 20 things all at the same time and, and you know, move on and keep innovating and, and be really good at that. And um, well, that's a nice segue to our interview uh, with uh, Piers and Scott. So let's let's have a listen to what they have to say about innovation and, and the retail industry. Well, Michael and I are excited to have Piers and Scott from PSFK join us today. And what we usually like to do is just start off by having each of our guests introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about the work you do. It's great to be here, Michael. Great to be here, Steve. This is uh, Piers Fawkes. Um, I'm founder of PSFK and of Retail Innovation Week. I'm looking forward to telling you all about what we do with my partner, Scott. Hi, everyone. My name is Scott Latchett, and I have been working with peers for far too long, but it still feels like yesterday. Um, I am a partner here, and I also lead the research and strategy efforts at PSFK. Um, A lot of client work there, and then also helping out from the membership side as well. Great. So um, for folks that may not be as familiar with PSFK, uh, could you guys tell us a little bit about how you got started in it and how that business has evolved? Yeah. The original project uh, was, was, was just that, a project, a writing project that um, I started as an exercise just to share ideas and practice writing, especially when I moved from London to New York in the early 2000s. Um, and I... Um, I started a this newfangled thing called a blog uh, back then, and um, I used the platform to kind of share ideas around creative change, culture, tr- and I didn't really know what a trend was then, but eventually I realized that what I was talking about was about trends and innovation. And so uh, it started as a writing project, which it was called, which used my initials, and um, the blog had a newsletter and people signed up for that newsletter and uh, it got fairly popular within the kind of advertising crowd, uh, the marketing crowd. And uh, before we knew it, companies were asking us about trends, trends research and uh, asking us what the trends were and hiring us for our advice. So um, I had to bring on people like Scott to help us think through the research and help uh, us provide these recommendations. And today, um, you know, we're a research company that helps companies particularly think about innovation in retail, innovation along the customer experience journey, 
We help companies through a, a mix of tools, whether it's a syndicated research uh, tool. So companies subscribe to get access to trend reports that we're publishing each week around key topics within retail. Uh, they hire us for bespoke research. So we have a lot of Silicon Valley companies and large North American lifestyle companies hire us. We also channel that into events. We bring to life the ideas that we're researching and uh, create events. One of them is Retail Innovation Week, which we'll touch upon later. Since you've been at this for a while, and, and as you know, this episode is about the practice of innovation and, and building innovation as a habit, as a capability for, for companies. I'm curious if you could just touch on some of the key things that you've learned over the years that really help retailers and, I guess, consumer companies more broadly innovate consistently. I think for me, there's a couple things. One is looking for examples of external or lateral innovation from adjacent industries or um, you know, even going a little bit further afield, thinking about what's emergent on the sort of fringes of culture, whether that's happening in sort of design or from consumers or whatever the case be, might be not being afraid to sort of, you know, go out and, and look further afield for change. So often we see that businesses get into this mindset of looking at what the competition is doing. And so then you just get into a sort of mindset of either following what's happening or, you know, just sort of iterating on top of what's already being done. And so one of the things that we try to do is, is bring in that lateral inspiration. The other thing that I think is related to that is, you know, just this idea of experimentation and iteration, embracing that as an opportunity to find out what will work not being afraid to, you know, have live experiments that um, involve consumers. I think consumers are very open and receptive to companies testing things out in the name of of innovation and being very transparent about um, what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And then obviously alongside that is both, um, you know, sort of qualitative and quantitative um, information that you're able to garner from that having the the ability to sort of internalize all of the successes and or failures and then learn from the things that didn't work and do more of, of what did work ultimately. And then the last thing I'll say is I am one semester in to teaching at City College as part of their master's program. Uh, it's called Branding and Integrated Communications. Certainly in just that opportunity to speak to younger students the, the the younger consumers are obviously leading a lot of change. And while a lot of the work that we do doesn't directly garner insights from directly from consumers, we're certainly looking at what's happening in the consumer marketplace and doing our best to um, use that as a lens for figuring out what, what ultimately is um, going to move the needle. And I think um, to the extent that companies have so many opportunities now to engage with their consumers that they really need to be doing so on a more uh, regular basis, or I, I guess just continuously. I'm curious, one of the things Michael and I have, uh, I guess, revisited multiple times in this first season is this idea that it seemed like for some retailers, it took a crisis like COVID-19 for them to innovate. I'm wondering if you find that to be true 
And if so, what, what might be changing in terms of the way you, you work with clients in your practice? Well, I think there's a couple of cliched terms that are being used right now. Accelerated change, jump forward five years are kind of phrases that are being used. And possibly we should agree, you know, th- those are truths as well. There's been a lot, um, a lot of kind of new ideas that have been bubbling. The U.S. in particular, and North America in particular, has the luxury of a, a large marketplace where they don't have to scramble. Retailers don't have to scramble as quickly as, say, European or Asian countries have to. And so a lot of these ideas have been bubbling and poking at the edges, but um, um, I don't think retailers have been compelled to take advantage of them. And a lot of these ideas that were th- being thought about and talked about suddenly had to be leveraged. So whether it was around um, new ways of delivering, new ways of logistics, new ways of creating uh, experiences, storytelling, and safety within stores. A lot of the ideas and the strategies and tactics have been developing for a while. It's not that we just had it. We had once the crisis started and the lockdown started, we had to get go to whiteboard and invent everything. There was a lot of technology uh, in place, and there were trends in place. And so, in terms of the way we're advising clients, sure, some of it is looking at how the new the reaction to the pandemic, but some of it is also taking some of the ideas that we had before, some augmented reality ideas, some other interactive ideas. And saying, well, maybe now it's the right time to kind of address this and leverage these ideas. As you think about um, what Piers just said about existing ideas and what our, our, I think our mutual friend, our good mutual friend, Carl Boutet, has called the great acceleration. Both things are, are true. Some are overstated than others. Trying to wrap my head around what is um, different structurally versus temporarily in the retail industry during the COVID era and as a result of the COVID era. So there's some things that that uh, were happening anyway and got accelerated. In your minds, is there something that's been a, a, a fundamental change that retailers need to innovate to take advantage of or steer around? What What's different in your mind, if anything? It's an interesting question. As Piers was talking, the thing that I think I was – I was most sort of ruminating on is, you know, often in our work, we are talking about the sort of shiny objects in the sense that they're mm. consumer facing. They are, you know, again, the the sort of AR activation or the thing that seems, you know, quite exciting and interesting in terms of, um, you know, really impacting that consumer in their sort of experience, whether that's at the store or online, whatever the case might be. More and more in the past couple of years, we're digging a lot more into these sort of operational, you know, sort of foundations, if you will. So the things that are less sexy, inventory, um, you know, supply chain, all of these things that are necessary building blocks in order to actually, um, you know, enable a lot of these, um, you know, more exciting experiences for the consumer are the things that are oftentimes sort of requiring much more innovation now and, and sort of Mm -hmm. thinking things through. And I think, you know, in the height of COVID we've seen a a major shift in terms of consumers willingness to, or necessity 
to test out new retailers and new brands simply mm-hmm. because um, the things that they might normally buy or where they might normally shop were no longer available. And in a marketplace where loyalty is such a difficult thing to garner, those are relationships that you might never sort of build back. There's this, there's this sort of notion that retailers and brands are sort of chasing the things that are going to be moving the needle in the sort of most immediate sense and sort of foregoing a lot of this like long-term thinking and planning that might not pay off right now, but is um, down the road going to be the thing that's, that's going to help them navigate through some of these crises. And, and I think, I don't know if that's a perfect answer to your question, but I'll sort of pause there for the moment and, um, you know, let you follow up. Yeah. Let me, let me pick up on one thread and and peers jump in on this one. Uh, Do you see consumer behavior or any elements of consumer behavior that have structurally changed? So it's a similar question, but different kind of looking at it from the other side of the lens. You know, we know that there's been a mass amount of, of brand trial from either necessity or, or change of lifestyle or whatever it is. Do you see any of anything that that's going to stick in other words um, yeah. consumers are forever going to do something different than think, pre-covid i think that uh some of the some of the kind of consumer activity that we see anecdotally we see uh on a personal level are are, are getting backed up by statistical data we actually in our latest future of retail reports we did a survey, uh, a quantitative survey of consumers to check the, the trends and the findings of that report. And themes such as uh, the embrace of e-commerce um, ring true. You know, People are as familiar, as willing to shop online as they are offline. Yeah, mm. like that. One of the interesting things that came through is a lot of people have tried new brands and new retailers during the last 10 months, often forced to through, through necessity. Yeah. They seem to, from the stats that we've, we've done, they seem to be more interested in returning to the brands that they worked mm. before. However, mm. with retailers, there seems to be a little bit more pros- promiscuity where they are, uh, if they find a great retail experience specifically, they will they will not go back to the previous retailer. Mm. So I think that's kind of interesting to me, the contrast where brands, product brand manufacturers, maybe they're similar or the traditional ones have always given great value. But the retailers, there's a new generation of retailers and people have been started making a switch and they might not go back to some of those previous retailers. And, of course, we see that within the traditional landscape and it's been long spoken about the department store and things like that. But um, we will continue as people just go do use DTC channels, use marketplaces. They're going to um, not go back to some of the stores they used to. As I think, you know, one of the, one of the things I talk a lot about in my book is this idea of the collapse of the mediocre middle where even very good is not good enough anymore. And I certainly think that's been, playing itself out for many years pre-pandemic. But it's interesting what you say, Pierce, because I do think that the pandemic has forced, in essence, this accelerated adoption or this discovery of some of these newer brands, which maybe you'd kind of settled for a relatively mediocre retailer 
but you weren't particularly encouraged to switch or experiment. And now you discovered something that that's actually quite superior. And I think I agree with you. It's going to be hard for those mediocre retailers or even pretty good retailers yeah, to, to win that customer back. Experimentation when it comes to marketplaces and other kind of channels of retail taking place. And I think consumers enjoy that, enjoy new ways and new, new systems. And I think, um, um, that's been quite a, 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 an interesting shift and optimistic shift that's taken place in the last 10 months. So uh, we're recording this right before Christmas. We're, we're definitely seeing both the promise of vaccines coming along, but also quite a lot of volatility and, and spread of COVID. So I guess it's a little bit hard. At least my, my crystal ball is not, not particularly trustworthy these days, but if we flash forward, say, to the latter part of 2021, where hopefully the worst of the pandemic is behind us, do, do you have any expectations beyond what we've already talked about in terms of what the future role of the store looks like? I think for me, and you know, this sort of uh, follows on the last uh, question as well, is you know, it's really interesting to see how the store is becoming now an extension of the online shopping process. Um, you know, again, out of necessity, even when you had consumers who were planning to visit a store um, in the midst of COVID, they were doing a lot more research upfront in order to ensure that they had a bit more certainty and control over that experience. So again, checking safety protocols, making sure um, absolutely that the products that they wanted were in stock, et cetera, et cetera. And then as a result of that, they began experimenting with things like buy online, pick up in store, if that was something that they hadn't done previously. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, even more so navigating to curbside pickup. And I think those things add a lot of convenience and are a sort of natural follow on from, you know, waiting a day or two days or a week to get your, your product sort of um, to arrive at your door. I think there's a lot of convenience associated with that. And then we're seeing, you know, major retailers like Best Buy reducing the amount of merchandise on their store floors by 50%. They're prioritizing their top sellers and then taking the remaining footprint and turning that into, um, you know, almost a warehouse or a distribution center. So I think that's going to be a, a major shift going forward, particularly with retailers that are locked into these sort of larger footprints. Alongside that, I also see a lot more focus on services less so than transactions. So things like um, repairs or um, adjacent services that might be related to, um, you know, that, that sort of product experience, big on education and as well as a sort of value add in terms of what retailers uh, can offer to their, their consumers as well. Um, and again, a lot of that transactional piece can happen online and then having the flexibility to sort of offer various ways to fulfill that to a customer as well. Pierce, you've got a big event coming up called Retail Innovation Week, where I imagine you'll be touching on many of the topics we only scratched the surface of here. Could you tell us a little bit about what Retail Innovation yeah, Week we is? A, we have a big event, online and free to attend event, January 11th to January 15th. Um, at retailinnovationweek.com. And it's five days of conversations around the topics we touched upon, topics which we know are important to 
retailers, brands, and everybody in between. Uh, e-commerce, the future of the store, purpose and inclusivity and sustainability, marketplaces. And each day we, um, we, we will have uh, speakers from larger corporations, emerging companies, startup solution providers. And I think one of the themes that's going to come through is this idea of getting your building, your building blocks right, getting your basics right to echo what God said. Let's be careful of some of the kind of whizzy stuff and let's just make sure that we have everything in place to help us kind of power through this year and get ready for hopefully a better future. Well, I've taken a look at the lineup you have and the various talks and it looks it looks really terrific and I, well, I participated in I think your first iteration of Retail Innovation Week uh, last year and that was a terrific experience. You've had a little bit more time to plan this. So I'm sure it'll be even better. But um, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, Pierce and Scott. And I hope everybody will check out Retail Innovation Week as well as all the great research and insights that you can find from PSFK. So thanks for joining us and hope you have a great week. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, guys. I I found a bunch of things interesting about that conversation. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and I've been thinking a bit about it, but I'm now thinking more about it. Thanks to the conversation is, is changing consumer habits and how it's reflected back upon retailers. Cause I, Brian Pearson said that this, this to me one time, um, from loyalty when he said, it's like a big jump ball moment for good or ill. And, and I've been thinking about that and, and they brought, uh, Scott and Piers brought that up. And, uh, I wonder if you heard the same thing and what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I did. And um, I guess I had two thoughts. One is, of course, I make a big deal about how even very good is not good enough anymore. And I suppose to the degree that there is this jump ball moment where consumers are out there maybe kicking the tires on a bunch of brands they never really thought about or Mm. basically had a compromise to shop there because wherever they wanted to shop wasn't open or they didn't feel safe there. I think that that absolutely creates opportunity for prior prior habits to go away and maybe new habits new loyalty to be to be formed also think there's just this really unusual moment particularly for online only or mostly online retailers where they've just gotten all this traffic to their sites which before they might have had to pay for in many cases uneconomically and so yeah there's just a lot of um flux i guess in the market right now and whether Consumers will go back to some of those brands they used to, you know, they loved. Well, they still love them. Um, when mm-hmm. we get back to some semblance of normalty, normalcy, and conversely, will some of these brands that have acquired quite a lot of new customers, will they be able to hold on to it when perhaps consumers feel safe going back to stores or going back to retailers that had a higher share of wallet? Well, there's no question. Uh, it's all, you know, lately I've been thinking about consumer habits and habits in general. And I've, I've seen it takes two weeks, it takes two months, it takes 90 days, it takes whatever to create a new habit. And, you know, by the time the COVID era is done, if all goes well, we'll be, we will have been in it for 18 months. That's a, no matter what time it takes to create a new habit, that's a significant amount of time. And I think, like I said, there's, there's, there's risk and opportunity. And, and to the retail industry, I think there's risk because I, I feel like uh, it's been such a jump ball moment that consumers are like, well, if I'm going to order from anybody, maybe somebody different, I, maybe I'll just go right to the manufacturer. Let's see, uh, type in their URL and hey, they they ship direct. Well, what do I 
why don't I just form a relationship with them? Um, like I, I really think it's a, it's a, it's going to be a very interesting uh, number of years because we don't really understand how these consumer habits are going to settle, right? No, I don't. I don't think so. But for sure, there's this kind of forced adoption and forced exploration. Mm. So that that forced alone thing is interesting. That's that's interesting. That that you know many of these cha- many of these changes or changes in habits have been thrust upon us as opposed to you know just happened uh, organically or for other reasons, right? Well, we know that. I mean, certainly, as as suppose most people listening to this know. I mean, we've been on an upward trajectory on kind of all things digital. Uh, for a while, but but some uh, adoption of certain technologies has been fairly slow. The natural evolution of adoption has been disrupted by COVID. And so that's just caused so many consumers to explore brands or methods of mm-hmm. buying that maybe they didn't know they would like, or maybe they didn't even yeah. know existed. There clearly are brands or formats that have been um, very significantly affected by shutdowns or safety mm. concerns where I suspect consumers will be quite happy to go back. But where you've really been exposed to a more remarkable solution to what you're looking for and, um, you know, you don't feel the need to go back, well, you know, that, that changes the playing field, obviously. So it's just a little hard to tell how pronounced that will be. But I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the longer we're in this, the more those habits can form. We also have things like subscription services yep. or just people, you know, signing up on a, a retailer's website and storing their, their information, right? That that's a little bit of a lock-in perhaps that yeah. didn't exist before. I wanted to end this episode the way you ended the chapter with this concept of, of wabi-sabi. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I have a little uh, side interest in Japanese culture, so I've become annoyingly uh, a fan of certain <laughs> certain uh, practices or, or terms. So wabi sabi is at least the way I interpret it, which is probably wrong. Is this idea of embracing perfection and embracing the natural cycle of decay? You know that things may mm-hmm. be beautiful and perfect for a while, but over time um, they lose that beauty and, and fall apart. And so there's a little bit of a spiritual concept to that, but but there's also just this idea that seeking or striving for perfection is is probably largely a waste of time. And I I think that's probably a good thing in our personal lives, but that's a different podcast. Uh, But I think as it relates to business and innovation, it's, it's this idea of certainly aiming to be remarkable, but remarkable and perfect. One of the things I find myself saying is remarkable and perfect are not the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Remarkable is in the eye of the beholder. It's that thing that gets you noticed, gets consumer engagement, builds loyalty and has the consumer want to share the story of your brand to literally remark upon it. What that looks like is constantly changing. And so we don't want to keep aiming for perfection. We want to become remarkable, but then we got to be on to the next thing and the next thing. And that's really what the essence of this essential is. This radical notion is, is building the practice and habit of innovation, not just trying to strive for this impossibility of perfection, but learning, moving on a little bit of polish, breaking it, Mm -hmm. starting anew over and over again, (laughs) 
forever, it seems. Well, uh, speaking of which, it's been the journey of our podcast as well. We've got one episode left in season one. We're excited uh, for that next episode where we'll talk about the Brave New World kind of wrap uh, all our discussions. We've got some great guests coming for that episode as well. But for now, why don't you, uh, Steve, read us out for uh, episode number 14. Well, thanks. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We'd appreciate a rating and review as well as recommending this podcast to a friend or colleague. I'm Steve Dennis. You can learn more about me on stephenpdennis.com and be sure and look for me on LinkedIn and Twitter for my latest insights. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast. You can learn about me on www.melablanc.co. Steve, have a safe week. You as well, Michael.